You're listening to New York's only home for reefer madness. Every week, we'll explore the unique perspective of cannabis in the global hub of commerce and culture. Hear the insights, stories, challenges, and successes of those blazing a path from Brooklyn to Buffalo and everywhere in between. I'm your host, Kalen Kassetter, coming to you from the Green Valley of Opportunity, Binghamton, New York. This is the Empire State of Cannabis. With complete governing control in Albany, the Democratic Party has had little problem in implementing its broad policy agenda. Legalizing cannabis for adult use has been a priority for Democrats over the past two years. Assembly Majority Leader Crystal Peoples-Stokes together together with Senator Liz Krueger have introduced legislation that would prioritize disadvantaged communities while implementing a broad regulatory framework for the production and sales of marijuana. Governor Andrew Cuomo has put forward a similar bill, attempting to legalize through the budgetary process. Despite such efforts, however, the Democratic State Senate has been unable to secure a majority, majority, reportedly two votes short as a result of seven notable holdouts, two being from Westchester and five being from Long Island. Demographics, public opinion, and political realities in these suburban districts have made supporting legalization politically perilous. Now, this is the opening paragraph of a brilliantly written article by CSG hemp policy intern Sarah McGovern, a current student at Binghamton University. Here today to discuss this publication in depth is Sarah and CEO of CSG Hemp and previous guest on Steve's Cannabis Show and host of the Empire State of Cannabis podcast, Kaylin Kassetter. Kaylin and Sarah, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much, Steve. It's a pleasure to come on the show. I think this is what second, third time on the show. I think third time. It's always a great conversation, and hopefully not the last. Oh, hopefully not. <laughs> well, I hope everybody's doing well in Binghamton and staying healthy. And uh, Sarah, I just want to give you some props. I've found that over the last couple of years, I've had countless people ask me, "So, what the hell is going on with legalization in New York?" And I've tried tirelessly to kind of articulate what you so beautifully did in that paper. And I'm really excited because now I feel like I have a resource to actually tell somebody <laughs> succinctly on what the hell is actually going on. So beautifully done, CSG. You guys are doing some really good work out in Binghamton, and I'm excited to kind of dive into this issue. Um, so the first question I have for you is, you met, we mentioned in this intro, uh, there are seven you know, players in this, uh, in, in this issue. Who are the senators in question? Sure. So that'd be the two from Westchester, Senators Mayer and Harakam, and also the Long Island Six. Now, only five of the Long Island Six were mentioned as being obviously opposed to it, but they're such a voting block that it's notable to mention all six of them. So that's Senators Goffrin, Brooks, Kaplan, Kaminsky, Thomas, and Martinez. So they're a voting block in Long Island, so they're all really important to mention here. And I think uh, both Kayla and I have had the the opportunity both together and separately to meet you know these senators in Albany and discuss the issues. And it is a bit of a political nightmare. And we're going to dive into kind of the why it is such a nightmare. But tell me, what are the the major concerns for these senators when it comes to legalization? Sure. So they've all sort of mentioned the public health and safety concerns are the most pressing for their constituents and also for them. A lot of them have said that they would support if there was more education, if there was more of a plan to address potential DUIs that would come as a result, uh, and more access just for the community to resources to ensure that this could be implemented in a safe way. Yeah, and Steve, you know, as, as we both know, 
the personal feelings almost get pushed aside for a lot of these representatives because of how difficult these districts are politically and because as Sarah was saying, these issues keep getting pushed by people who are opposed to legalization and pushing their own agenda. Yeah, it's uh, it's definitely it's like their own. I won't say cult, but for, for simplicity, it's like they have their own little kind of political group down there. That's, you know, it seems like Long Island demographics is very different than the rest of the state, especially when it comes to legalization. You know, we've heard the public safety, education, law enforcement, you know, personally, I'd love to see a lot of the revenues get poured back indication. I think that's kind of one of the foundational issues that we have as a country, let alone a state to start to address. I have a little bit of issues, especially in the midst of what's going on with the BLM movement and kind of the disproportionality of arrests that have occurred in black and brown communities to start dumping money from cannabis revenues into to, to law enforcement. You know, I, I, I have a little bit of personal feelings about that. But regardless, it seems like and not that it seems they have a lot of power down there. Um, and it seems like there's been some seriously strong oppositional organization going down there. What groups in particular are kind of a, a part of this organized opposition? So it's mainly the PTA organizations as well as law enforcement. And, you know, the PTA seems to have been the most outspoken against legalization. Yeah. Why does the PTA have so much power down there? It's, I, I don't see a lot of the you know, PTA members up here kind of, you know, making as much of a stink and having much of an influence when it comes to legalization as they do downstate. Why, what is it about downstate that allows them to have so much pull? Well, I definitely think that downstate, especially in the suburbs, they've shown that they really don't support legalization the way that the rest of the state does. In a Siena poll, 58% statewide support legalization, whereas only 44% do in suburbs. And that's where these PTAs are being especially vocal. So I think it's a lot of just harnessing the already all of those concerns that are there. And they're just loud voices and they're really making their voices hurt in these areas where it's just not supported. Yeah, and, and two things to add, organization and fear, right? So they're expert at getting organized, getting their message out to a large swath of people. And that second part, fear, right? When you bring in children and you say, well, this is going to harm our future generations, that stokes a lot of fear. And it's turned now into uh, a slowing down of the process and of a, well, let's just focus on medical, maybe let's slow this legalization process down, let's think of a million reasons why this shouldn't get done. And then you have organizations like Smart Approaches to Marijuana, which will jump on that message and, and continue to perpetuate the kind of misinformation. Yeah, the, the what about the kids argument is has been something that we've been confronted for from the last couple of years and studies continue to come out. And I believe I saw one. Was it marijuana moment that I maybe maybe MJ Biss? I just saw a publication come out recently that said there has been no increase in youth use of cannabis since legalization in Colorado. Like at what point are the facts just kind of being ignored and they're really just playing this, you know, play, preying on people's emotions because we know that there is an increase increase in traffic fatalities related to cannabis we know that there isn't uh, an increase in youth use following legalization at what point do they concede or do you think will they ever well i think also steve it's important let's look at what these opponents don't want to talk about which is the effects on mental health of children who grow up believing their parents are criminals because they consume cannabis 
right, or children who grow up in a broken household because the justice system is taking their parents away from them and incarcerating them for cannabis, something that large multinational, multi-state companies are turning, you know, millions of dollars of profit in. So they don't want to talk about that um, yet. Like you said, they want to point to statistically flawed studies or just an emotional appeal. Yeah, and, and as as much as I don't want to admit it, it has worked, and it really has been kind of the mm-hmm. uh, the the opposition and kind of preventing us from getting this forward. I believe that we would have gotten it passed through the budget process this year if it wasn't for COVID. Obviously, mm-hmm. kind of the you know legislative session is a bit up in the air right now and kind of uh, undefined. Um, but let's hope for let let's hope for next year. I hope that you know we can continue to educate these folks. And you know, it's just one of those things. I do correct me if I'm wrong. Was it Har- Pete Harkum or was it uh, Senator Galgren that recently came on board and said that he was now we now had his vote? I think it was Harkum, wasn't it? Yeah, I think it was Harkum too. He recently said that after you know being outwardly against it. So it's interesting to see that. Yeah, and I and I remember seeing a video. Uh, I was pretty stewed up following you know last year's uh, failed effort uh, because Kevin Thomas, when he ran, like partly ran on a pro legalization platform. I remember seeing an interview where he directly supported you know legalization, and then to come through and you know be one of the deciding votes that prevents an entire state from you know capitalizing on this you know multifaceted industry is very frustrating. I understand it's the you got to play the political game. It's frustrating nonetheless. No, it's absolutely frustrating because we have lives on the line. We have an economy on the line. And it is not just another political issue for those of us in the industry and for communities that continue to face, you know, uh, persecution because of this plant. And Sarah talks about that, too. And the racial disparities and arrests in these communities really, I think, go hand in hand in why these lawmakers maybe and the community at large isn't driven uh, towards legalization. Yeah. And I really want to kind of dive into the nitty gritty of the, because it, it's, you know, we wrote a paper uh, a while back. It was rock normal and not we, you know, formerly we uh, rock normal drug policy uh, Alliance wrote a, a really powerful paper about the disproportionate of arrests in Monroe County and the city of Rochester. But the reality is it's not just happening here. It's happening in Binghamton and it's especially happening in Long Island and the downstate suburbs. Can you kind of elaborate on what we see from a legal perspective and how, you know, people of color and black and brown communities are being prosecuted versus white folks and kind of cannabis, you know, the prevalence of cannabis usage amongst these uh, uh, different folks? Sure. So in Westchester County, although it's uh, it's 55% white, only 14% of arrests are of white members of the community, whereas the demographics are 14% black, but they're making up 52% of arrests. So it's completely disproportionate. And it's a similar thing among Hispanic members of the community. 24% of the population, 32% of arrests. So it's, you know, for white people living in these communities, they're not facing the same challenges that black members of the community are. And for essentially cannabis and adult use is essentially already legal for white people. And it's the same thing in Nassau and Suffolk counties. Very similar breakdown. 60% white in Nassau, 30% black and, or, and Hispanic in Nassau. And we see the exact flip of the, um, the numbers. 30% of arrests are white, 60% of arrests are black and Hispanic. And the numbers are very similar in Suffolk. So across the board in these New York suburbs, 
black and brown communities are suffering to an utmost degree, whereas the white communities are barely affected, which affects the urgency that those communities feel to legalize. And, and especially in, you know, what we're going through right now following George Floyd's death and, the, you know, the, the Black Lives Matter movement around the country, you know, I think I think people are starting to realize how much cannabis legalization and cannabis criminalization is ingrained in police reform. Right. People like myself, you know, a middle class white dude. I've never felt the effects of criminalization of cannabis. I've got to be honest. I've never once worried in my entire life about getting arrested or going to jail for cannabis. I'm aware of the privilege and a lot of the, you know, a lot of people that look like me are, are aware of that too. But when you start looking at these other communities, you walk outside, you have a possession of a joint or something ludicrous or something, you know, t- minimal, your whole life could be uprooted. And at what point are we going to realize and come to terms that like, while you know, legalizing cannabis isn't going to solve the, you know, institutional racism and everything that comes with it. It's a damn good start. But these folks on Long Island, you know, we see the demographics. It doesn't really affect the people that are living there. So how do we instate this sense of urgency to the get to get to them to see how the other half lives and how the other half is being affected? Is it possible? Well, I think, you know, Stephen, it's very important to look at the arguments that these, you know, especially smart purchase marijuana is making. And what did they say last year and the year before? Decriminalization, decriminalization, or we have decriminalization. And yet I think a new report came out in Albany, 80 some percent of arrests uh, were people of color, right? Decriminalization is not enough. We need to regulate the industry. And this isn't just for us, but the interest of public safety, um, for economic benefit, but also so that we take away the criminal element. Even if you have decriminalization, there still needs to be a place where people purchase their cannabis. And unfortunately, the realities are that when the police and law enforcement come in and prosecute those crimes for sales, it's almost always a person of color. And what they're doing is involving themselves in a marketplace in an industry that is celebrated at the higher echelons of the private equity markets and these companies all across the country. So it's time to allow them and what we call the legacy marketplace or the informal marketplace to uh, to participate in this, you know, large accumulation of wealth. And, and create generational wealth. And I think, you know, a lot of the times when we talk about, yeah. you know, cannabis legalization is full spectrum when it comes to the positives it can bring to the state and communities. And oftentimes I think that when we talk about, you know, the economic improvements, we're only really looking at the plus side, the revenues. But the reality is, you know, when we're, you know, looking at this deficit and what cannabis can be, you know, how cannabis legalization can be used as a tool. Yeah, we can expect some exorbitantly high revenues to come from this industry. But what about the money saved? What about the cost savings of police no longer have to having to enforce and 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 prosecute and all the you know be tying up the legal system with these low-level marijuana crimes i don't know what the numbers are but my guess is if you look at the cost savings from the from the criminal criminalization of cannabis and the revenues from the legalization in the rec market and all everything that comes with that that 
at what was, you know, pre-COVID, a $13 billion budget deficit starts to look a lot smaller. Do you have any idea, you know, and I, I don't mean to put you on the spot, I'm just not sure, what how much New York State spends from a, le- from a law enforcement perspective on, on prosecuting and persecuting low-level marijuana crimes? I don't think we have that data, but I think it's going to be hard to figure that out because it's beyond just what their costs are in terms of uh, the hours of in the court and et cetera. But what is the cost of society and uh, the cost on individuals if the police have to look at cannabis as probable cause for a crime? And that's very difficult to put on, put numbers on and quantify yeah, I agree. And it's, uh, you know, you start looking at like what happens from the time you get pulled over, you know, it's, it's, you get pulled over, you, you take your, you know, the, you're taking up the cops time, you go to the station, you get booked, you, you know, you, you sit in a cell, you have to go back to court, like, even if it ended up to be nothing, right, you're holding up the legal system for things, you know, for crimes that that police resources should be focused on you're you're just you know possibly destroying these folks lives and at the very least it's become it's a huge headache and inconvenience and it's just like at what point are we just going to drop this shit and start looking at cannabis as a medicine and a wellness product and and a means to you know economic prosperity for all communities rather than uh you know a criminalized plant you know we could go on about Mm -hmm. it forever and i don't want to take up any more time you know on this but it is something that i think you know looking forward and i think probably in five to six years hopefully when it's legalized we're going to start looking at like man remember that time that people used to go to jail for this shit it, it, it's quite amazing and it does keep me up at night um but i really want to kind of get down to the po- politics of legalization and start looking at uh the politics from a thirty thousand foot view so sarah if you would can you kind of break down the politics of legalization in long island and kind of what that looks like sure absolutely so as i said because of these people aren't really feeling the effects of prohibition of adult legalization, there's not that urgency to legalize. And therefore, there's no urgency to legalize from the representatives themselves. The districts in Long Island are really tough districts. I talk about in the article a little bit about PVI scores. And basically, as that score gets closer and closer to zero, it shows the, how the split is in the district, Democrat versus Republican. So a lot of these districts are almost an even split, which means they're crazy competitive. So when those elections come around, that representative who may be an incumbent still doesn't have the assurance that they're going to win that election. And the Long Island Six, a lot of them only just got into office in 2018. So they're a new representative, and they definitely have the feeling that if they support a controversial issue like adult use legalization, they're putting their re-election on the line. They're afraid that by supporting something like this, they're going to lose those important votes that they need to win in these really competitive districts. Yeah, you know, it's, I, you're, you hit the nail on the head. You know, it's already a tough district. It's already very much, you know, not as, as, as truly democratic as the rest of the state. And as a new politician, you know, and if you want to make any sort of career in politics, you have to play the game. And I would venture to say maybe not all, but probably most of the Long Island Six personally probably would prefer to legalize cannabis, but obviously have to follow the wishes of their constituency. 
Yeah, um, absolutely. You know, it, it's tough. I would not like to be a politician, especially in, in that realm where it's a very tough demographic. I will say I was very ignorant to the partisan voter index that you break down. It was really educational. I really uh, I really appreciate you doing that because I really had no idea that exists. So um, if, if you just would, if we could just back up real quick, can you give like a brief you know, overview of what the partisan voter index means just for all my listeners? Sure. So partisan voter index or PVI is actually a federal measure that measures the federal congressional districts within every district across the country. And every single district has a score. So like I said, as that score gets closer to zero, it's more and more competitive. So for example, one district in Long Island is D plus one. So that means it's Democratic leaning by, by one point, which is very, very competitive. Uh, another district might be R plus two. So it's Republican leaning, but because that two is still really close to zero, it's still really competitive. So that's what we see all throughout Long Island, those really competitive congressional districts, which translate to very competitive local elections as well. So it's, it's fair to say that the higher number means the less competitive. Like if you had a D plus 10, you're almost guaranteed to win a Democratic seat, where if you're a D plus one, it's essentially, you know, up up for grabs. It, it's a yeah. coin flip. Interesting. Uh, very cool. I did not know that. Um, and kind of, you know, last question, you know, we're in the middle, uh, you know, coming, hopefully coming out of, uh, of COVID and a, a return to normalcy to some extent. Um, do we ha- can you guys provide a- an update on current legalization efforts? I had Savino in the, uh, on the podcast a few months ago to kind of discuss what's going on with COVID and how this is all working. Um, do you have any updates on what's happening? You know, finish final. You know, finishing out the session in twenty twenty and looking to twenty twenty one. Yeah, so I don't think it looks good, Steve, for twenty twenty. Right, uh, I think twenty twenty one is the magic year. It's an off off year, so some of these representatives won't feel the pressure of the elections. And there's just going to be such a need for it from a revenue perspective. Um, And the governor needs to look at the MRTAC version and move his plan there because that's what's going to get it done. We need to look at revenue allocations. At least half of the revenue is going to have to go to disadvantaged communities. And I think that on the legislative side, they should look at specific programs to set up for that and to point to. But I think the rest is probably going to have to go to the general fund. Uh, because we're going to need that. And the MRTA also allows for local distribution and county distribution of tax revenue. That's going to be critical, right? And the tax rates are lower too. So if we want to get an industry off the ground and competitive with the illicit marketplace, it's going to have to look like the MRTAC. And if the governor comes in on some of those issues, it gets done. It gets done in the budget process. And if the governor wants it done in the budget process, it gets done. So I'm hopeful, but this is also year three of being hopeful. Sick of waiting, especially that we, was it just uh, Montana that qualified to put legalization on the ballot this November? Yep. You know, there's a chance that we're going to have Montana legalized before us. Well, New Jersey is going to pass this fall, no, no doubt. 
Yeah, and I think you know, I think that's probably a good thing because it should light a fire fire under you know the butts of the the legislature and the governor. Like, hey, you know, Massachusetts is legal, New Jersey it's legal. You know, it's only a matter of time. We don't want to be the last man standing or the last folks standing because it's gonna. Most people, it's already hard enough to establish a business in New York, and if they have the ability to operate, you know, on the outskirts of New York and all these legal states, you know, why come here? So I do think it's going to be twenty twenty one. I also think it's going to be in the budget process, but where where they negotiate, you know, in terms of allocation um, and distribution is still up in the air. Um, I really appreciate both coming on the show today and taking time to explain this. Uh, Sarah, thank you so much. You did a brilliant job. Um, you did what I haven't been able to explain over two years easily and brilliantly and articulately, and I thank you very much. Uh, Kaylin, keep doing the good work you guys are doing at CSG. Always love seeing what you guys have going on on social media and all the good work that you're doing. So thank you both so much for coming on the show today. I really do appreciate it. Thank you. Thank so you so much, much Steve. It was a pleasure. Yeah, Alrighty, everybody. That, yeah, thank you so much. That's, uh, it, this wraps up another episode, a uh, special episode of Steve's Cannabis Show with Sarah McGovern and Kaylin Kastetter, uh, both of CSG Hemp, and we'll see you all next week. Thanks again.